Amen. If you're ready to get the word, somebody say, bring it. Amen. Thank you all for coming today. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm so glad that you're here. I am just amazed that you came here on a nice Sunday when it's warm outside, when all your friends were probably trying to get you to come to the lake, the barbecue. I'm so glad you put church first. Look at your neighbor and say, God comes first. Amen. Thank you for coming. We started 19 months ago a sermon series on the book of Ephesians. Today is the 70th message, the 70th message in this sermon series. It started February 2017 and has been going on ever since. Today, for the grand finale, I'm going to read verse by verse the entire book of Ephesians. Now, if you are new with us, I don't want you to think I read entire books of the Bible every time you come to church, though that wouldn't be the worst thing that could happen in church, trust me. But I want you to get this, whether you've been a part of all 70 messages, or if this is your first time here, I want you to get the concept of the book of Ephesians. It was written by Paul the Apostle to the Christians in Ephesus, and the theme is in him because the word, or the phrase rather, in him, in Christ, in Jesus, is found over 27 times. Now I timed myself, and I can do it roughly in an hour. Are you all ready to do this? I said, are y'all ready to do it? With or without you, I'm going, okay? The door is the same one you came in. You can go out, but I hope that you stay with me. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What we notice here, and you'll notice I'll have little... Um, little comments as we go on. What you notice here is we have the author. His name is Paul. He was converted from Judaism to Christianity but remained a Jew. Jews can become Christians, okay? Now, if you're a Muslim, you become a Christian. There's two different worldviews there. You can't hold on to both, but Jews can become Christians. That was the whole point. So a Jew named Paul converted and became a Christian. Judaism is the foundation of Christianity. They go hand in hand. He's writing to the Christians at Ephesus, but the name he calls them as holy people. You want to know what that means in the Greek? It's saints. So saints aren't just people who die and go to heaven. Saints are people who are alive on the earth. And you don't have to pray to your neighbor to get a hold of God. Pray to the Father in Jesus' name and the Holy Spirit answers all the time. He tells them that they're holy and faithful in Christ Jesus and that's the first time we hear that phrase, in Christ Jesus. You will hear it 26 more times. He then says that he's writing to them. Why is he not there talking to them, it's because he's in jail. We'll hear about why he's in jail in just a little bit. We, we hear then next grace and peace. Everybody say grace and peace. Thank you. Grace and peace is his greeting to them in the name of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We a lot of times as Christians say, God bless you, God be with you. That's cool. But if you want to go to the ancient blessing of Christians, it's grace and peace. Grace, peace. A lot of times people say peace, deuces, things like that. But Christians have been saying it for a long time. Uh, Muslims say, assalamu alaikum. And then the person responds back, assalamu alaikum, alaikum salam. Peace be back unto you is what the person responds. We've been saying peace 500 years longer than the Muslims 
Muslims. And by the way, the, the Muslims are not a religion of peace. You may not know nice Muslims, but Muhammad was not nice at all. Christianity has peace because Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. And that should mark our lives. And what is grace? Grace is forgiveness of sins, not by works, but by a gift. Literally, the word gift and grace come from the same Greek word, karis. We now move into Paul as he goes into the letter, what he now is calling the spiritual blessing section. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That first verse is going to now signify everything he tells you in this section. It's all about being blessed with spiritual blessings in Christ. And notice how many times it says in Christ or in him. This is the most power-packed section of the in hymns. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love. Somebody say, in love. Thank you. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. You notice this, these are just big run-on sentences. For many of you, it's just going right over your head. But guess what? Out of those 70 messages we preached, just in this section alone, I preached about a dozen messages. There are so many rich theology and theological discussions happening right here. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ. Nudge your neighbor and say, this includes you. This includes you. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now notice the highlight in blue. I want to show you that the Trinity is mentioned nine times in this book. Nine times the Trinity is mentioned, and I highlighted in blue. When you believed, you were marked in him, in Jesus, with the seal by the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit of our inheritance into the redemption of those who are God the Father's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, once again, that went by most of you. I mean, let's be honest. I'm reading it, and you're just like, what is he talking about? Can I just tell you right here, theologians say what he just talked about is the most heavenly-minded perspective a Christian can ever have in the Bible. I want you to understand those verses, those verses right there will be the depth of your Christianity for the rest of your life. You will never exceed the limits of the knowledge of what you just heard. How would I summarize it? Well, I would summarize it just in these few points. Number one, the Christian is blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So everything he talks about is from the position we're in Jesus. So imagine you stepping into Christ. And now in Christ, wow, everything has changed. And what are some of the things that he says has happened now that you're in Christ? Number one, you're adopted. You're no longer a bastard child of the devil. The devil's not a good father. And we were all born into his kingdom. And he abused every one of us. You're forgiven of every one of your sins. All the things you've done that you regret, that religion promises you you can get rid of if you follow all their works, do the crooked chicken, become a vegan, fast during Ramadan, pray towards Mecca, all of those things, Jesus says, I'll forgive right now. 
then you're lavished with wisdom because a lot of you go, I don't get this, I don't get this. The Bible literally says the Holy Spirit will give you the wisdom so you can get it. And then you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So now this is not just a religion. This isn't, isn't just a bunch of to-dos, a list of things you got to do. It's actually an intimate relationship with Jesus where the Holy Spirit inside of you says, you belong to God. You're marked with his signet ring. How they used to send letters back then was covered with the wax um, the droppings, hot wax, and then they would put the, the ring there to show you who it came from. You are literally sealed on the inside by the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't stop there. Somebody say there's more. There's more to this introduction. Then we understand, get this, that the plan of salvation might have happened to us, like me, 1995, or for you a few years ago. But the plan of salvation was God's plan before the world ever even began. So get this, before Adam and Eve ever sinned, God had a destiny. He predestined us to be saved. Some people ask the question, why would God create us if he knew we would sin? The reason why God created us knowing that we would sin is because he wanted us to have a choice to choose him. He didn't want robots. But he knew the moment he created us with having free will that some of us would sin and turn our back on him and that that would be the penalty. But what was he going to pay for the penalty of our sins? Was he just going to create hell and let us go there? No. He knew from the very beginning before he ever created Adam and Eve that when they would sin against him, he would send his son to die. So before there was ever a sin problem, there was an answer, and his name is Jesus. So how much more should we take confidence in what God is doing in our lives right now? Before you ever showed up to 2018, God was already here with an answer. The plan of salvation was made before the world was ever created, and all we now have to do is believe to receive it, to receive that salvation, remain in faith so that we can receive the inheritance, which we're all waiting for, which is a new body to rule and reign with Christ. Remember, when you die, you go to heaven temporarily. Heaven is just like the, uh, what would you would call the... Uh, uh, the resort, where you go to hang out for a little bit, but the resort's not your home. Imagine having a home in the, in the place of Puerto Vallarta or a place in Boca Raton. Imagine having your home there. And I love when I visit Florida, you'll sometimes see that on their bumper stickers for the tourists, which you call vacation, I call home. <laughs> Come on. And so we're not supposed to stay in heaven. Heaven comes to earth. The prayer of Jesus is answered through the resurrection of our bodies. As he was resurrected, we get resurrected bodies. But notice all of this happens by faith. That's when I had you nudge each other because you were included when you believed. So we don't get this because of our good works. We get it because of faith. Somebody say preach. Amen. Now Paul moves on to this prayer. He's got two prayers in Ephesians. Here's his first prayer. For this reason... For what reason? Literally the things he just mentioned, all of those heavenly-minded nuggies of spiritual blessings. He says, man, when I start thinking about this, and then I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people, I can't stop giving thanks for you or remembering you in my prayers. So he says, i got to start praying for you when I think about this. Now what does Paul pray? Get his first prayer. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the Spirit so that you can have more money and a better job. Is that what it says? No. We notice the Trinity here again. We pray to the Father in Jesus' name, and the Spirit comes so that we can have, what, our best life now and just easy living, more vacations? No, so that we can have wisdom and revelation. Knowledge is the root to all success. But for what reason? So that you may, what, know him better. So he's praying that we'll know God better. How many of you want to know God better? How many want to pray to the Father 
in the name of Jesus and experience the wisdom and the revelation by the Holy Spirit so you can know God better. I hope that you do. Look at how deep he gets. He blows away any Buddhist right here, any Hindu right here with enlightenment, those kind of teachings. Look at what he says. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Do you see what happened? He used power when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Guess what? We're getting raised from the dead and being able to rule and reign with Christ. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but the Oh, but also in the one to come. How many know there's an age to come? And who's going to be the greatest name in the age to come? Donald Trump. Who's going to be the greatest name in the age to come? Miley Cyrus. No, who's going to be the greatest name in the age to come? Say it like you mean it. Jesus. Amen. So we're going to be in that kingdom with him. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Look at how important that is. How does God rule and reign on the earth? Through the church. How is God showing his power right now on the earth? Through the church. What should you be a part of? The church. Which he appointed over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. God fills everything. So Paul's first prayer, get it, is that we might know more about Jesus. Why should we know more about Jesus? Because in knowing Jesus are these three things. Did you get it when we read it? When I know Jesus, I have hope beyond the scope of human limitation. That means I don't get discouraged just when I see the world going crazy around me. I know Jesus, I have hope. Somebody say hope. When I know Jesus, I know the riches of God's blessing. Not just the riches of money, but I know the riches of joy and peace and happiness. And guess what else I have? I have power. Somebody say power. Thank you, because greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. So the more I know Jesus, what do I know? I know his hope. I know his riches. I know his power. You should pray that prayer too. Amen? Now we move right into chapter 2. Chapters and verses aren't in the original version of the Bible. It was just read as one letter to the people. Oftentimes they gathered together daily to hear these letters written, or to, to hear these letters read. And if you were in Ephesus, you probably only had this letter. This was your Bible, in other words. Now imagine hearing this for the first time. You're knowing that your apostle's in jail. This comes to you, and you hear it, and guess what Paul does? He breaks down the gospel to you again, that beautiful message that you remember him preaching years ago when you first became a Christian, and he had to travel off and preach to others, and you haven't seen him since, and you think he's arrested, but you're not sure, but you get this letter, and it confirms he's been in jail. That's why he hasn't come back, and he stops right here in the middle of the letter, and he says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. In the ways you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. You see what he says right here? Yes, the devil was working on you, but it was your choice to follow your flesh and your desires. So can the devil make you sin? No, but he can tempt you to sin with the things you already desire. 
And he says, all of us were like this. Now, let's keep going. Like the rest, we were by nature. Look at he puts himself there. We were by nature deserving of wrath. So even Jew and Gentile are born sinners and have chosen sin. But look at what he says, verse 4, but because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy. What is God rich in? Mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. You see what every other religion says is do good and God will do good for you. Do good and God will love you. You love him first and he will love you. But what does Christianity say? God loves you when you don't love him. God did good for you when you couldn't do good for him. And what do we call that? We call that grace. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ. And seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Could you imagine hearing that? You're thinking to yourself, Paul, I'm sitting in Ephesus. Paul, I'm sitting in Chicago. And Paul would look right back at you if he could and say, yes, your body's there. But your spirit's with Jesus. Where Jesus is, you are. Why? Because of the Wi-Fi of heaven, the Holy Spirit. Father and Son are ruling from heaven. But the Holy Spirit is here connecting us to earth. I have a heavenly connection. I don't know about you. Does anybody else here have a connection to heaven? You are seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages, there's ages to come, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now let's read verses 8, 9, and 10 together. 1, 2, 3, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. What is the heart of the message of Ephesians? This right here, the gospel. You're not saved by your good works. You're saved by the good work of Jesus Christ, by his grace. But because of that, now you can do good works. What do you do first? Join the Indy 500 or build a car? you got to have a car before you join the Indy 500. Are you listening? What do you do first, teach a child math and arithmetic or give birth to the child mothers? What comes first, the birth or you teaching lessons about arithmetic? Okay, what comes first, you learning to fly an airplane and doing, uh, what, what comes first, you teaching somebody how to do a trade, a job, or being born? You can't teach somebody how to be a plumber unless they're born. You can't teach somebody how to fly a plane unless they're what? What comes first? Do sinners do good works first or do sinners become Christians first? Sinners become Christians first. Sinners are born again first, then they do good works. See, some of you are trying to do good works to become a Christian. That is like a baby trying to learn arithmetic in the womb. You can't do it. you got to be born first. We are not saved by our good works. You don't clean your car and then take it to a car wash, do you? How many of y'all clean and vacuum your car and then you take it to a car wash? No, you come to the car wash dirty. You don't clean and change yourself and say, then I'm going to church. I'm ready for God now. You come as you are as a sinner so that God can change you. But does he leave you that way? No, he loves you just the way you are, but too much to let you stay that way. Now he makes you his handiwork, and he creates you in Christ Jesus. So now that you're born, can you learn math? Yes. Now that you're born, can you learn how to fly a plane? Now that you've made a car, can you race it? Yes. Now that you're made a Christian, what are you created to do? You are created to do what? What are you created to do? Good works. 
And did God just come up with that last minute when you showed up at a church and became a Christian? He's like, angels, I don't know what to do with these guys now. Let's figure something out. No, these good works were prepared in advance for you. Before you were ever born, God had good works for you to do. God saw a purpose for you that was beyond your sin and said, the moment they accept my purpose, I got stuff for them to do. Come on, somebody. So if you remember anything, if you remember anything about the sermon series, remember the gospel. How would I summarize the gospel? That though we were all born sinners and chose to live as sinners, Jesus died for us. Now that we are saved by God's grace through faith, we are God's handiwork created to do good works. Paul keeps going. Now what you got to understand right here is that he's given us the heavenly-minded stuff. He's given us the gospel. Now he's going to talk about Jew and Gentile. And why is this so important? Because Paul was himself a Jew that's now a Christian, but guess where he was called to go preach? He was called to go preach to the Gentiles, who are Gentiles, non-Jews. And guess who put Jesus on the cross? Jews. They arrested him. And guess who arrested Paul? Jews. Does that mean God doesn't love Jews? No, it just means they were being sassy and being angry towards the plans of God. But Paul didn't stop. Look at what Paul now says to these people in Ephesus who are primarily Gentiles. And let's see if we can relate to this. How many of you can trace your ancestor to a Jewish origin? So by birth, you are Jewish. Do I have any Jewish people here by genetics? We had one in the first service. How many of you are a non-Jew then? Raise your hand. That's everybody else. Paul's got your back. Are you ready for this? Because Moses was a what? What was Moses? A Jew. What was Abraham? What were all the prophets of the Old Testament? Y'all say it like you mean. What was Moses? What were the prophets of the Old Testament? So they were really important. So now be, imagine following a Jewish Messiah, but you might feel left out because you ain't Jewish. Look what Paul says to you. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, that's all of us here, called uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, which is the foreskin being removed off the male genitalia on the eighth day. This was a mark that you were a Jew. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. So as Gentiles, we were all of our ancestors were worshiping false gods, excluded from the citizenship in Israel. Our people didn't live there. Foreigners to the covenants of the promise. We weren't there when Moses was getting the Ten Commandments. Some of you might have been at, at Mount Pichu. Uh, Mount Pichu. How do you say it? Mount Pichu. Machu Picchu. There we go. Some of you were at Machu Picchu. Uh, what's the Roman city that got, got taken over by uh, uh, the lava? What was that one called? Pompeii. My people were at Pompeii. Some of you were at Machu Picchu. Others of you were in the, the different cultures of your world. All of us were somewhere else other than where Moses and the prophets were. Can I get an amen from a bunch of pagan Gentiles up in this place? Be honest with where your ancestor comes from. All of us, if we ain't Jew, our ancestors trace their way all the way back to paganism. You were foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. Well, us Vikings, we worshiped a God, yeah, but it was a false God. Yeah, us Romans, we worshiped God, yeah, but it was a false God. You were literally without God in the world. But watch, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. How many are happy Italians have been brought near by the blood of Christ? How many are happy now your culture has been brought near by the blood of Christ? For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one. What are the two groups? Say them. Number one is what? Jew. What's the next group? Gentile. 
and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. So on the cross, Jesus did away with the law that they were given. But does that now mean the law doesn't serve a purpose? No. The moral law continues, but the regulations they had to live by don't. Let me give you an example. When you hear somebody today say to you, why don't you believe in homosexuality? You point to the Old Testament. Then they say, but why do you eat selfish and lechon? Because it's also a sin there. This is where you need to understand what Paul's talking about. The Gentiles didn't need to get circumcised, but they needed to keep the commands of God. How did they know which ones to keep and which ones not to keep? The ones that separated them from the world, the ones, the commands that kept Jews from Gentiles weren't the moral laws. God commanded the whole world to live by the moral law. That's why when they didn't keep it in Noah's day, Jew and Gentile, they got destroyed, even though technically there wasn't the, the Abraham's descendants yet, but you know what I mean. And then during Sodom and Gomorrah, the Gentiles got destroyed because of sexual perversion. God has always held the world by his moral laws. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not lie, etc. But what made Israel separate? Dietary law. Nobody else had a dietary law like the Jewish people. They had a religious law that revolved around a priesthood and a temple. Nobody else had the temple like them. They had a civil law that required certain people to die over different things. You could die for being a rebellious child. How many are happy today you didn't grow up in Israel? Come on. You, you could have died because you did something wrong or touched the Ark of the Covenant. It was those things, listen, that made the difference between Jew and Gentile, not morals. It was those things. But guess what God said? I will now do away with those things. So Gentiles, you don't have to be circumcised now. And all the grown men said, amen. You know you're happy about that. You don't have to get circumcised. And guess what? You don't have to change your diet. But what you do need to do is accept Christ and obey the moral law. And then once the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, about 40 years after this, Jewish people, you don't have to be into that either. Hebrews says, now follow Christ as a Jew by birth, and then God will make a way for you. And the Jews still get the land. All the promises are still for them. They'll still need to remember their heritage. But their law is now our law, the new covenant. Somebody say the new covenant. The old covenant came from Moses with 613 laws, and most of those laws were civil dietary, priestly, and religious. Very few of them were moral, and so moral laws continue, and I'll show that to you in just a moment. He said his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. So he's making a new human race out of Jew and Gentile. It's not, no longer about what tribe you're from. It's about whether or not you're born again. Thus making peace, and in one body to re reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. See, the hostility between Jew and Gentile was put to death on the cross. He came and preached to you who were far away. Say, say to your neighbor, that's you. He came and preached to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. And if there was a Jew here, we would say to you. Now watch the Trinity again. For through him, the Son, we both have access to the Father by the one Spirit. Both Jew and Gentile gets to the Father by who? What's the one way to the Father? Through the Son, Jesus Christ. Do we have to now go through the, the, the Jewish priesthood and to the temple? No, we go through Jesus. And how do we know? By the Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens. And all my gente said amen. Come on, you are fellow citizens with God's people and also the members of his household. So you're not just stuck over here as a stepchild. You brought into the family. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. That's why the temple was destroyed after Jesus rose from the dead a few 
years later because we don't need a temple. We're the temple. We're the temple. And how are we built? We're built on the foundation of apostles like Paul, prophets like the ones in the Old Testament by Jesus, the cornerstone, and God the Father does it through the Spirit. Wow. Is that not amazing or what? The revelation is given to us that when Jesus died on the cross, he destroyed the barrier of the law and made both Jews and non-Jews one new humanity, Christians. How much more so should we now not be separated by melanin? What do you call that, melatonin? Melatonin is color of skin. If we're no longer separated by the covenants, we should no longer be separated by the shape of our eyes or the color of our skin or the language that we speak. Therefore, Jews and non-Jews in Christ together are God's temple. We meet in a place called church, but we're really the church. We could call this a temple, but it ain't really the temple. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets with Jesus, the cornerstone. Now, there's no chapters and verses, so let's keep going as he continues this thought, because he's going to tell them, hey, guys, you want to know why the Jewish people persecuted Jesus, and you want to know why they're persecuting me? It's because they don't even know their own scriptures, because when they go back into their scriptures, they will see that the mystery was already revealed there. The mystery is that Jew and Gentile was going to get saved, and let me just prove it to you so you can see it. In Genesis chapter 12, when God calls out Abraham and says, you're going to be my people now, look at what he says to him. Abraham, or Abram, this is before his name was changed. Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I'll show you, and that's going to be Israel. These are going to be the generation of, this is where the generation of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob come from. These are where Israelites will come from. Jacob had his sons, and the sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Abraham is his, his granddaddy. Look at what God promises Abraham here. I will make you a great nation, talking about Israel, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse you. But what does it say right there? And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now watch Paul. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now we know why he's in jail. Why is he in jail? For the sake of you Gentiles. Who arrested him? Jews. Why did Jews arrest him? Because they didn't like the Jewish Messiah being presented to the Gentiles. But Paul didn't let that stop him. He said, I'm in jail because I have preached to you non-Jews the riches of God's grace. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I've already written briefly. That was in the chapter before. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. What was the mystery of Christ which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God? God the Father's holy apostles and prophets. How did people miss this? It wasn't revealed to them because God was waiting till this time to take the blinders off so they can see it. And what is the mystery? Look at the mystery. Read it together with me. One, two, three. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. How many think that's pretty awesome? Look at what he says. I became a servant of this gospel. Gospel's good news. That's what we learned in Ephesians 2, that we're saved by grace through faith. Everybody, Jew and Gentile, I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. 
Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me. Why was that grace given to him? He says it again, to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Now, Paul's humble here. He says, I'm the least, but he wrote the most of the New Testament. This is an amazing apostle, but I love his humility. And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold, multifaceted wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose. What kind of purpose does God have? An eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So yes, there was a time that it actually happened, but it was always in the mind of God to save Jew and Gentile. And now if you go back to those prophets, you can see the hints of it. Here's the way I like to see it. The gospel was concealed in the Old Testament, but revealed in the New Testament. What made the difference between the concealing and the revealing? Jesus coming in the flesh. For God so loved the world. In him and through faith in him. Through our good works? No. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. So he's saying, man, I'm getting heavy revies. I'm getting deep nuggies while I'm in jail so that you can learn more about this revelation. So what was Paul's special insight? What made Paul so special to us in the Bible as Christians is that he was given special insight and understanding on how God used Jesus to bring together both the Jew and non-Jew into the body of Christ. And how did he say it works out? Well, the mystery of the new humanity was hidden in the Old Testament, but now revealed in the New Testament, and we all come to Jesus by faith. So why did the Jews, everybody look up here, please. Why did the Jews miss Jesus in his first coming? Because they thought when he came, he was only going to come for them, the Jews, and destroy all the Gentiles. They kind of missed the whole point of God loving the world, didn't they? They kind of missed the whole point of God using Abraham to bless all nations. So why do you think they put Jesus on the cross? Because he wasn't the Messiah that they wanted. So now why are they mad at Paul? Why is now Paul locked up? Because he ain't doing what they want him to do either. He's supposed to just be a prophet going to their people. But guess what? If you go back into the Bible, you see prophets going to other people all the time. Jonah went to where? Nineveh. Nineveh was an Israelite city? No, Nineveh was the capital of what nation? Assyria or in the land of Babylon. The people of God have always been reaching out to the nations. And so Paul is saying right here, hey man, don't get upset that I'm in jail because I'm like the prophets suffering for God's people who are both Jew and Gentile. Now Paul goes right into his second prayer. For this reason, for what reason? For the gospel being in Jew and Gentile, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. I pray out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in his inner, in your innermost being so that what? Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love. He said, I pray to the Father in Jesus' name for you that the Spirit may root you in love. You know the gospel. You know you're accepted, Jew and Gentile. But I don't want you to miss this, Paul says. I want you to be rooted in love. Paul's first prayer was that they what? That they know who? That they know Jesus. What's his second prayer? That they what? Are rooted in love. What are Paul's two prayers in Ephesians? That you know God and you know his love. I wonder if you're praying that today for your family, your friends, your community. I know I'm praying that for every single one of you. 
when I go through the list of our disciples, I pray for you by name and for your children, that your life will be rooted like a plant, like a tree in the love of God. And together, you may have power with all the Lord's saints or holy people. And let's do it together to grasp how wide. Come on, do how wide, how long, how high, and deep is the love of Christ. He says, I pray that you will know the width, the length, the height, the depth of the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, God can blow our mind anytime he wants, amen, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, come on, and ever and ever, amen. That's Paul's second prayer. How would I break it down? Really simple. Paul's prayer is for God's people to have Christ dwell in their heart and to experience the boundless love of God to be filled to the fullness of his presence. And guess what? When you're experiencing God's love, you will experience things you could never even have asked for or imagined. And I'm not just talking about you having more things. When I say I love my wife today more than I loved her uh, when I first got married, that's not because we have more things in our life. I'm saying my love for her is greater beyond my imagination from that day I married her, uh, June 19th, 2005. I, uh, I am telling you, I love her more now than I ever have before because of things not at all. Why? Because I've gotten to the depth of her character. God is going to do more in your life than you can imagine, and it has nothing to do with things. It has to do with how well you get to know him and to be known by him. My wife and I could be alone right now, and I have the greatest love this world has ever known. You get what I'm saying? That you can have with a man or a woman, I'm telling you. And it has nothing to do with things. It has to do with how well we know each other. That's why Paul's first prayer is for you to know God and for you to know his love. Those are the greatest things you can experience in life. Paul now goes on into chapter 4, and he says, As a prisoner for the Lord, I'm glad he keeps reminding us. Amen. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you received. How many of you would be inspired now hearing that? Paul's in jail so that I could hear the gospel. I better live up to what I've been taught. How many would be inspired by that? Imagine if your parents were in jail for trying to provide for you or if they were captured in a war trying to protect you and they wrote you back and said, hey, use your life for God's glory. Wouldn't you take that serious? I take that serious so I look at the prisoner of the Lord, Paul, here, and he says, hey, guys, I'm laying my life down for you guys. Just You live up to now what you're called. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the bond, uh, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now he gives them one of the most ancient creeds of the Bible. Let's read this creed together. One, two, three. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, the Son, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That was the creed of Christians that brought Roman, the Roman Empire to its knees in 300 years. They couldn't kill us. We didn't die. We multiplied. They couldn't kill us fast enough because we kept multiplying. What did we believe? That there was one body, the church, that was filled by the Spirit of God. We had a hope beyond the scope of human limitations. We knew that Jesus died on the cross and was with the Father. We had faith in him. And when we were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we believed that we had joined his kingdom. And we believe that our God was over all and through all and in all. 
But to each one of us, a grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Now watch, it gets a little deep, but he now takes us to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He says, that is why it said, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. What does that simply mean? When Jesus died, he went down first into what was called the grave, or in Hebrew, Sheol. Sheol had two compartments. One was called hell, the place of torture for those who rejected God. That hell is the hell we now know of in the Bible. It's hell. The other one is a place called Abraham's bosom, known as paradise. It's the place he told the thief on the cross that would, he would be with him there that day, paradise. Paradise was also known as Abraham's bosom. We know of this story from Jesus when he told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was a beggar but loved the Lord, and when he died, he went to Abraham's bosom where all the saints of old had gone. But the rich man went there to hell and suffered, and the conversation goes from there in that parable. So we know this is what existed. The people that were in Abraham's bosom could not yet go ascend spiritually as their body died, their soul departed into the paradise. They could not go into heaven until they had been regenerated by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So when Jesus comes into the grave, he goes to them and he takes them with him when he goes back into heaven. Oh, y'all get quiet. When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to people. When the kings would win wars, they would have their trophies of the people with them that they would capture. But the captives, the slaves of Christ are the children of God who were waiting for the Messiah to come. Abraham was waiting in, in, in that place of paradise. Moses, all of them were waiting. It wasn't a, a purgatory. It was a waiting place. And then he leads them into the presence of God. And then what does he say to those who are in hell? What you rejected by the prophets? Because Peter talks about this, what he talked to them in the spirits in prison. He says, what you rejected here by men that brought you here was really my word. Get ready for the lake of fire where the devil will be cast. So on judgment day, all souls come from heaven to rule and reign with Christ, and hell is emptied and cast into the lake of fire. Now, when he gave gifts to people, think about this. This is the day of Pentecost. He ascends to heaven. He brings all of his trophies of grace from the old covenant with him. And then on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, when he died, he then gives gifts. And the gifts that Paul wants to talk about here are the five ministry gifts of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. The spiritual gifts, the sign gifts, are mentioned in Paul's other letters, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. But he mentions these here because he wants you to know that these were given to equip God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So he's tying it in. God gave us these five ministry gifts, leaders to work in the church until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Somebody say mature. Thank you, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, that we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and what horoscopes say and superstitions like chichu cabra. How do you say that, that superstition? Chupu cabra, that you won't believe you have to throw salt over your, your, your shoulder like Rachel Ray does. You won't be blown here and there by the every wind of teaching, by the cunning craftiness of people trying to get you to send in $100 for holy water or people in their deceitful scheming. But watch, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. We're growing up to be like Jesus 
From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its what? As each part does its what? Its work. So what is the point here? Paul gives us the Trinitarian Creed, the Creed of Christians, and then he explains how when Jesus descends and ascends, it's so that he may bring the people into the presence of God and then bring from heaven the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are two main positions in the church, elders and deacons. Paul talks about them in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But what will elders and deacons do in the church? What they will do are these five positions. Some elders and deacons will be apostles starting new churches. Others will be prophets, speak on behalf of God. Others will be evangelists and tell the world about Jesus like Billy Graham did. Others will be pastors shepherding local congregations like I'm doing here and those who will teach in Bible studies and life groups. What is the purpose of elders and deacons Doing these works by God's grace. What is the purpose? To equip the church. To equip you for works of service so that the body of Christ will be strong and built up into the fullness of Jesus. Think about it. When you, when you see those different shows where they all come together like Power Rangers, Christ is our head and we're all these other parts. And these fivefold ministry gifts strengthen the body so the arms are strong, the legs are strong. For what purpose? So that Christ's church can multiply on the earth. Everybody say halfway there. Now, it takes me about 40 minutes to do the halfway point. The next 20 minutes is going to be the other half. But I want you to see the breakdown. What we just learned in the first uh, four and a half chapters are what I like to call the heavenly-minded goodies because the Bible teaches us to be so heavenly-minded that we change the earth for good. Have you ever heard it the wrong way? Don't be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. Have you heard that before? Well, that's not the Bible's way. The Bible's way is to get you so heavenly-minded you change the earth for good. So let's review what we just got in the first half. Paul tells you who he is, tells you who you are. You're a holy person, faithful in Christ. He then lists off all these spiritual blessings we have in Jesus. He prays that we would know God. He then preaches the gospel to us that we're saved by grace through faith. He then explains that Jew and Gentile make one new humanity in Christ. He then prays for us to know the love of God and be rooted in it. He teaches us the creed that we should base our life on and tells us all about the church and how we should be building it. Now, just in case you were to think Paul was just giving you heavenly-minded goodies, things that are deep that you would just spend time meditating on, being a monk or something, now he goes into instructions. Literally, I don't even need to take much time to explain them because as I begin to read them, it will sound like somebody's preaching to you. It will just sound like somebody's preaching right at you because Paul knew how to get the point across by the Holy Spirit. Obviously, the Holy Spirit's using him. He's going to teach us our Christian moral code. Remember I told you, we don't keep the dietary law of the Jews, but how many know we still keep the sexual ethics of the Jews? How many know that? How many know we don't keep the, uh, the priestly law of the Jews, but how many know that we're going to keep the ethical way we treat our parents and parents treat their children kind of laws? How many know we're going to keep those same moral laws? And he'll show you as he breaks it down. He's going to teach you about the family and your job. So it's literally, we already learned about the church. Then you'll learn about family and job because church comes first. Being in the body of Christ comes first. I'm not just talking about coming here comes first. I'm saying being in the church comes before your family and job because if you're not born again, what is your family and job going to do for you? And then you learn about spiritual warfare and the, the book ends. Are you guys ready for the last half? I got 16 minutes. Somebody say preach it. Thank you. Look at verse four, uh, 17 of chapter 4. So I tell you this. What did he just tell you? Four chapters of all those heavenly-minded goodies. I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. 
and the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God. How many are getting images in your mind right now of Oprah and Little Wayne and all these other people? Come on. Because of their ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They have lost all sensitivity. They've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. How many got people in mind that he's talking about? How many of you used to live like that? Amen. You better go check the gospel. We all used to be like that in one way or another. He says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that's in Jesus. Now notice the concept he's going to give you. Putting off and putting on. You were taught in regard to your former way of life, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And to be made new in the attitude of your mind. Get rid of stinking thinking and to put on the new self. Take off the old, put on the new. And who is the new self created like? Created to be like who? Come on, say, created to be like who? And what? True righteousness and holiness. Take off the old, put on the new. Are y'all ready for some preaching? I love the preacher. Look at what he says. Therefore, y'all better be ready. Therefore, each, each of you must put off falsehood. Speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share. Guess where those commands came from? Put off falsehood, it sounds just like what? Thou shall not lie. Don't steal. Do something useful with your hands. Sounds exactly like what? Thou shall not steal. Don't be angry. Sounds exactly like what? Thou shall not murder because Jesus said hatred in your heart is now like murder. There's three of your ten moral commandments right there. Badao. Does the moral law go away? No. But does the dietary law change? Amen. So now if anybody brings that up, you can show that to them. Watch. Keep going. Preaching. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building each, other's up, according, building each other up according to your needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, who you were sealed with for the day of redemption. The day of redemption is when we get our resurrected body. Now watch this. Get rid of all, say when they get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Do I need to stop and comment on that? You all get that. Pretty obvious, right? Verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. No chapters and verses. Let's keep going into chapter 5. Follow God's example. Whose example? Whose example? God's example. Thank you. Therefore, as dearly loved children, walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave up himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Does he say among you, there must not even be a hint of, of lechon, of pork? Does he say among you, there must not even be a hint of a wool and a cotton piece of clothing because you can't mix them? Jews had to live by that. It was either all wool or all cotton. Is that what it says? No, it says, but there not, must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Now, somebody says, well, pastor, Jesus never said anything against homosexuality. I could say, well, he didn't say anything against child molesting. Does that mean it's right? The reason why Jesus didn't have to list every single one of the moral sexual ethics of the Old Testament is because when he said one man and one woman, that settled it. Sex only exists for one man, one woman, and marriage. Everything else is sexual immorality. Don't even let there be a hint around you. Oh, come on, somebody. Don't even let there be a hint of sexual morality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or, of course, joking. Some of you thought your parents were just teaching you this stuff. This comes from Jesus. 
which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Now look at how serious it gets. Let's read 5, 6, and 7 together. 1, 2, 3. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Somebody say amen if you believe it. Come on, somebody. I believe it. I'm not angry trying to tell people to go to hell. I don't have that power. But shouldn't I love you enough to tell you if you're going there by your behavior? Somebody said, Joe, you're not the judge. You're right, but I got the judge's book right here and how he judges. I know what standard he's going to judge by. Do you want me to pretend I don't know him? I mean, if you're going to face Judge Judy, you better have your stuff together, right? If you're going to face this judge, you better know what he doesn't want to see in your life. And then once again, we're not saved by good works, and we don't go to hell for bad works. We actually are saved by faith, and we go to hell for unbelief. Unbelief is the root manifestation. It's, it's the manifestation of the root of pride. Pride says it doesn't have to be God's way. It can be my way. That's the lie from the garden. And so when we have faith, we trust God for the morality of our life. We trust him to live like this. What happens if we sin? We repent. For, forgiveness is still a blessing for the Christian, isn't it? It's not that after you become a Christian, God says, well, I'm not going to forgive you anymore. But we don't use God's forgiveness to keep on sinning. Amen. Because he says, for you once were in darkness. Do you want to keep being in darkness after electricity goes out and the lights come back on? You say, no, I like it now. Keep all the lights off. No, you, we prefer light, don't we? For once you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. How many enjoy living as children of the light? I'm just telling you, I don't want to go back to those things. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. What are the three attributes of a Christian's life? All goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. That's why you're in church today. Take your face out of Facebook, put it in his book, and keep studying the word. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Expose them. Talk about it. Tell people about it. It's shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret, let alone pay $12.99 at a movie theater to watch it. Come on, somebody. Why do I want to watch you break God's commands and send yourself to hell? Come on, I'm not even supposed to talk about that kind of wickedness. Be careful on what you bring in through social media and movies and TV. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Knock on your, uh, nudge your neighbor right now and say, wake up. Wake up, wake up. You better catch this part of the message because imagine you're in Ephesus, you're getting tired too. But what does he say? Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Don't you try to put off these things and think they don't matter. They do. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Is it any wonder the days are evil? No, the days are evil because people are living evil. They're choosing to do it another way. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns from the Spirit. Sing and make music to your heart to the, from, the, from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder, everybody get this, that the longest section of the book is the section on Christian living, morality? No, because what's the number one thing we struggle with? Right there, Christian living. There's people who say, I believe in the Trinity. I believe in the creed, one body, one Lord, one spirit. I believe in all that, but I still want to sleep with my girlfriend. That's why Paul takes the time to break it down. Do you all get it? Some people say, I believe in heaven. I believe in hell. I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe he rose again. But you know what? I don't believe uh, me keeping my tithe and offering for what I need in my house is greed. I think that's okay because God knows my needs. Come on, somebody. 
Paul takes that time to break it down. We should take it serious. Are we saved by doing good things? No, we're saved by faith and trusting God to do these good things. So if there's anything in this list that comes hard to you, pray to God to give you the strength. Pray that you may know him more and know more about his love for you. God's love is what motivates us to do these things. When Christians take off the old and put on the new, we're made to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. If I was to summarize all the list we just read, I would summarize it like this. We're to live a holy life because we're called holy people. So we should avoid all kinds of sexual sin. We should avoid bitterness, all kinds of foolish talk, idolatry, rage, greed, drunkenness, and evil, and be filled with the Holy Spirit and thanksgiving to God. Can I hear an amen? Now are you ready to learn how to do the family? See, after you got Christian morals down, now you can do the family right. Because you're not going to, your husband's not going to cheat on you if he's doing this right. Right? Your wife's not going to throw the pan at you if she's doing this right. Are you guys listening? Because she's not going to live out of anger. So now we can understand how it works. But get this. Before we learn about our families and our jobs, get the first concept. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Husbands submitting to their wives. Wives submitting to their husbands. Children submitting to their parents. Parents submitting to their children. Bosses submitting to their employees. Employees submitting to their bosses. We're all equally submitting to each other out of reverence for Christ. But just because I submit to you, that doesn't mean you're in charge. There's still people in charge. But I submit to you by doing what's right by you according to God's will. So I'm your pastor. I'm in charge. But I can never violate God's will for your life. I have to serve you. Do you get it? Mom and dad are in charge of the house. But they can never violate God's will for their children. They're there to serve them. So wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. Is the husband better than the wife? No. The husband is just put in charge. Both Adam and Eve were made equally. When they sinned, they, came with, they had certain curses. One of the curses to the women, uh, that is that the Bible says she would be under her husband. You will be under your husband, it says, and your desire will be for him, and he will rule over you. It's part of the curse. So there has to be someone in charge. Husband is in charge. But can anybody ever use this to abuse their wife? No, because they just got the moral code above. Are you guys listening? Can I abuse my wife because now I'm in charge? No, the Bible says you can't even act out of anger. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. See, now he makes a comparison. His body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Now husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church. So we're to take care of our wives, right? Without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their own, to love their wives as their own bodies. He who does not love his wife does not love himself. Do you see his, his spirituality is connected to how he treats his wife? If I don't treat my wife right, I can't say I'm right with God because my wife to me is like the church to Jesus. And Jesus always treats the church right. No one ever had their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. Now watch. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one. Where was that first said? Old Testament book of Genesis. Who said it first in the New Testament? Jesus. Who's reiterating it? Paul, the greatest apostle, wrote three-fourths of the New Testament. Do you have another definition of marriage? You cannot. The Old Testament says it. Jesus said it. Paul reiterated What is sexuality meant for to becoming one man and woman in marriage? Now watch how profound this is. He says this is a profound mystery. Somebody say profound. But he's not talking about man and woman coming together. He's talking about Christ and the church. 
Do you see the revelation? Why were we ever made male and female? Before there was ever a head of the house, before there was ever any of those things of what we would see here in the structure, there was still going to be male and female reproducing, making children. What was the purpose? What was the mystery of a man and woman coming together, making love to make children? It was always from day one to represent Christ, his divinity with humanity coming together. That's the mystery. That's why we have husbands and wives. It's not the other way around. You get to have a wife because Christ gets to have a church. You get to have a husband because Christ gets to have a church. Husbands and wives are nothing but the shadow of the reality. What would you rather have, my phone or the shadow of my phone? What would you rather have, marriage or Christ in the church? Your marriage is for about 40, 50 years. Christ in the church is for eternity. The shadow is a civilization right now. The kingdom of God is the reality. Kingdom is coming where there's not going to be husbands or wives or mothers and fathers and children, but sons and daughters of God, ruling and reigning with Christ. I get the privilege of being married for a season. I get the privilege of being married and, ha- and being a father for a season, but the greatest honor is being a child of God forever. Verse 33, however, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Going right on down to the children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise. Where does that come from? Where does it come from, honor your father and your mother? The Ten Commandments, the moral law is brought up again. Does it say if you don't obey them, you can be stoned? No. See, once again, it's the moral law. And what was the promise that was given in the Ten Commandments for obedience to your parents? So that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Look at your children, parents, and say, obey us that it may go well with you and that you will live long. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Here's the family. Wives submitting to husbands, husbands loving their wives, children obeying the parents, and parents not frustrating their children. Now he goes to your job. Slaves and masters, you can just substitute employees and bosses. We've talked about this before during one of our 70 sermons, so trust me, I'm not going over it lightly. But listen, can I use an example of me being a hoe and Jesus being my pimp? Can I use that? Say, Jesus pimps me. He puts me on the street for tricks every now and then. Could I ever redeem and use the example of a pimp with with prostitutes? No, but in the example here, we're called slaves of Christ, and he's called my master. So when it talks about slaves, is it talking about kuta kinte, the the African slave trade? Is it talking about the slave trade that existed in South and Central America under the Mayans and Incans? Is it talking about the slave trade that existed in the jungles of Africa among the warring tribes? Is it talking about those things? No, no, no. What it's talking about here is when these pagans became Christians, they were in a Roman empire where there were haves and have-nots. And what he's saying to them is you guys need to respect and treat each other right. But you'll see how these people, the slaves, were treated. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes on you, but as slaves of Christ. How many slaves of Christ do I have here? Doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they're slave or free. Now watch this. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Treat them how? As slaves of Christ, do not threaten them. If I'm commanded not to threaten you, can I rape you? Can I murder you? Can I steal you from your country? So whatever happened in America under the name of Christianity and slavery was wrong. They're going to hell based on God's word. Whatever was happening here was totally different. These bosses, in other words, could not even threaten the people they had working with them, let alone treat them 
any other kind of way. Because guess what? Those morals still apply to them. You think Jesus is going to say in chapter 4, you can't be angry with somebody, but now you can be angry and beat your slave? One of the cultic practices of American slave owners was to convince them the slaves were not human. Thank you, evolution. That helped them. That helped them to do that. So those of you who believe you came from the goo through the zoo to you, that helps keep people in slavery. They took the aborigines, killed them, and put them in the Smithsonian Institute, thought they were missing links. So evolution is not how we live by. We live by all men are created equal in the image of God. And so what created the Civil War, whether you believe it was a good thing or not, I do. 300,000 people were willing to kill and say, these are human beings, and they deserve their freedom. And so Christians were saying the same thing. I may have more than you. You may have been in debt and needed to work for me. You may have been a a capture of a war, and you may have been in my house. But now that we're Christians, I won't even threaten you. Why? Since you know that he is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. You treat him wrong, God is going to judge you. So do you think you could get away with that in the South and believe this? Of course not. So in summary of God, family, and, and the home here, what do we learn? Everyone must live in humility before God and the family, wives submitting to their husbands, husbands loving their wives, children obeying their parents, parents not frustrating their children. How should we have boss and employee relationships? We serve each other in humility as Christians and our slaves of Christ, and we will be judged without favoritism. Y'all ready for the end? Y'all ready for this word right here, finally? Come on, how many are ready for a finally? Finally, be strong in the Lord. What are you supposed to be strong in everything you just learned and in the power of his might? Put on the full armor of God. What are you doing? You're fighting now to keep your ground. Take your stand against the devil's scheme because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. Put on the full armor of God so when the evil day comes, you may stand your ground after you have done everything to stand. So stand your ground morally. Stand your ground for your family. Stand your ground for your job. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the helmet of the spirit, uh, the, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the what? The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Did you hear the armor of God? We're not fighting for our victory. We're fighting from victory. We're not running after something. We're standing on what we've already been given. And pray. In the spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray for me that I can get out of jail. Is that what it says? Look at what Paul says. Pray for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fiercely make known the mystery of the gospel. He doesn't pray to get out of jail, Jason. He prays that while he's in jail, he can keep preaching to the Roman guards and to all the people through these letters. He said, for which I'm an ambassador and change. Pray that I may declare it fiercely as I should. Come on, somebody. Do you want to be used by God to fight a good fight and win? Well, what do you got to do? Put on the armor. Let's just go through it quick. You put on the belt of truth. The truth of God's words holds up your pants. You put on the breastplate of righteousness. The righteousness of God, by the grace of God, guards your heart. That's what the the breastplate guards. Then you put on the gospel of peace. Your shoes are the gospel. It leads you in peace to your job, to relationships. Then you have the shield of faith extinguishing all of the arrows of the enemy that come against your faith. You have this up as the word of God. Then you put on the helmet of salvation. As Romans 12 says, you're renewed in your mind. Get rid of of the stinking thinking, knowing who you are in Christ. I believe I am who he said I am, and I can do what he said I can do. And then you have the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and you take down every attack. 
How do you do that? It's connected to your prayer life. Look at your neighbor and say, get a life, a prayer life. Amen. And then now the last verses. Adam and the altar workers, would you come, please? A minute, an hour and five minutes. Let's give it up for Jesus. Come on. Praise God. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am doing. Tychicus was the one who brought the letter from jail. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Can we read these last two verses together? One, two, three. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Y'all ain't reading. One, two, three again from verse 23. One, two, three. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. I want to ask you a question. Don't look at the screen. Just look at me, please. Was it worth it? Thank you. 19 months. 70 messages. Verse by verse. Was it worth it? I know you got stuff to do. But you came, and you're here now. But I want you to check in with me in these last few moments. Was it worth it? When we started this series, I asked you to read the book once a week. I only missed two weeks, to be honest with you, only two. But, man, it changed my life. I would come to those scriptures with different things in my heart, and God would use it to speak to me. I saw so many answers to questions that I had answered by that book. When I would come and preach to you, I was preaching to myself so many times. When we talked about anger, just that's the one that sticks out to me, I got free from anger, man. I just made a final decision, like, I can't be a pastor angry or a husband angry. I got to get free. Was it worth it for you? Because we got other messages we're going to go to. We got other things we're going to do. But did it change your life? Like, can you actually look back on these last 19 months or for whatever time in the church you came, and can you actually say, like, man, I got something out of God's Word. And it is so precious. Like, did you hear God speaking to you through this? There is nothing like the Word of God. Nothing that can transform your heart, that can change your life, that can give you insight into the way of the world. I can't tell you, because we preach 17 messages on the morals. I can't tell you how many times I would read, because the days are evil. Make the most of your time, because the days are evil. And I would think to myself, I'm not going to let a sinner out sin me as I do righteousness. I'll be more righteous than they are a sinner. Because they're making the most of their time. They're making the most to do all those travels, to book all those shows, to write all their books, to make all those movies. They're doing what they got to do. I won't let them outdo me for my God. Did you get something out of this? I hope you did. I hope you got something that you carry beyond today. 
Because there's other books of the Bible, and we'll go through them. But trust me when I tell you, the information that's found here, you'll never find it any better in any other book of the Bible. This is it. This is Christianity in a nutshell. So if you were just to ask me how would I summarize it all, it would be this. And I don't know how you would do it. I'd probably write it down in your journal so you don't forget. But I would say, how, how would I summarize 19 months, 70 messages, a year and eight months of time? God the Father sent Jesus to die on the cross for all of our sins so that both Jews and a non-Jew like me could be in an intimate faith-based relationship with the Holy Spirit so that when I would ride my bike, I would have the Spirit of God with me so that in Him and through Him would be all things, even the air that I breathe or the tree that I see, that I could see God in the midst of His creation. And that as one new humanity, as a new creation, I would live out my life. I would live out doing good works in God because now I'm in the divinity of God. I partake of his divinity as we had that triangle representing in him that I am in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Humanity and divinity have kissed in Jesus on the cross. And that he put one hand to heaven and the other to the gutter to reach out to me, November 5th, 1995. And I could be restored to him. May it never get old to us. Let's just pray in closing. I'm a mess right now. Lord, help us to never forget what you taught us in this book. God, two services. I read this thing verse by verse. I practiced two different times this week. That means I have recited this book of the Bible four times, God. And I still feel like I'm only scratching the surface of your love. I pray that we'll know the width, the length, the depth, and the height of your love, God. That we would see you do more than we could ever ask or imagine. If you're here today and you haven't experienced that love, would you ask Jesus into your heart right now?